Hello and welcome to the Finding Proof podcast and today I am talking to the wonderful Tracy O'Malley from the United States. She's a coach, she's a very wise woman with a very interesting lived experience which we're going to talk about today and Tracy, welcome to the show. I know that you do, we were just talking before we went, before we started recording about some of the similarities between the work we do. I know you work in the space of addictions um, which on the surface looks very different to what I do but you and I, we had similar conversations, similar thoughts about what drives people's behavior. So that's probably what we're going to talk a little bit about today. So welcome to the show. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me on. I'm ex- I love, I could talk about this stuff all day long because it's so, people aren't talking about it and it's what's ripping apart businesses, families, relationships, all the things. So I'm ready. So glad to have you here. And you're so, you're so right. You know, addictions, we talk about addictions and we assume, or people often assume that we're talking about hard drugs. There are so many variables when it comes to addictions that can be problematic for individuals, for, um, for couples, as you say, for families. So do you want to tell us a little bit just by way of introduction, you know, what brought you to this work? I know you've had a long journey. Um, so how did, what would you like to tell us about how, it brought, how you came to be in this space? Well, I was probably <clears throat> the least likely on paper um, because of the family lineage. I am Irish, very, very Irish. So basically that means I was born and bred to drink and fight. And so to be like this um, soul, you know, emotional coach, I mean, if you know the Irish at all, we wear like our emotions on our sleeve and we can snap at a moment's notice and very reactionary. And that was very much how I grew up, that environment of um, very passionate, and I'm using air quotation marks if you're listening, um, passionate family and it was a high functioning alcoholic home. Um, My dad was the alcoholic. My mom was the classic codependent. And when we talk about addictions, it's not just substances, there's behaviors, there's emotions, there's um, um, practices, there's also, you know, issue based, like all sorts of different um, addictions. And I think a lot of times I believe we're all, it's a coping mechanism and it's a symptom for something. And in my family, they were running rampant. It wasn't just the alcohol. It wasn't just the codependency. It was everything. Um, the way we dealt with anger, the way that we work, we were workaholics in our family and we wore that as a badge of honor. And it was, I was about 10 years old when like this awakening came in me, like I knew as a child that early on that this had to matter for something. I couldn't wrap my brain around why is dad like Jekyll and Hyde? Why is mom so emotionally unavailable that she doesn't get out of bed? I mean, I got my period when I was 10 and she didn't know it for three years. That's how checked out she was. Like that, like putting that in perspective, like, holy shit, like that's how checked out she was. Um, I had a sexual assault on me at 10 years old and At 10 years old, I also started coping with food and I was actually stealing food in order to, that was my drug of choice at 10 years old. And, you know, I remember seeking out uh, like why this was happening. Like I was an innocent child at that age. I could understand that I was an innocent child. I didn't know how to fix what was happening in our home. And so I was just trying to make sense of it all. And obviously at that age and the environment I was in, it was going to be a challenge to find that. Um, and so for the next few years, you know, I would use food, I would use exercise 
at 15, I took my first drink and I knew that I was a different kind of drinker than my Zima drinking friends, you know, like the, the uh, wine cooler friends. I was going for like the scotch and whiskey, like my first yeah. trip out, out. And I knew I wanted something different. I just, you know, was looking around and I had no teachers to show me something different. Um, and so I acted as if I was doing different, like I didn't drink like my dad. So I justified that I didn't isolate exactly like my mom. So I made that okay. Um, you know, all the things I would say, well, at least I'm not like that. So I'm not going to repeat that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Cause that was the biggest thing. I didn't want to repeat that. I knew eventually I would have a family. And if you had asked me what my biggest fear was my entire life, once I knew like I was going to be a mom one day. And to this day, my biggest fear was, um, I don't want to fuck up my kids. Yeah. I don't want to fuck up my kids and carry the burdens that I've carried. And so I acted completely different in my life than what I grew up in. But the problem was, is even though it had different wrapping paper, it was the same package, the same um, worries, the same fears, the same judgments, the same uh, coping mechanisms, but polished up a little bit different. And it wasn't until I had children and looked into their faces that I realized that I needed to learn quick because I could see how it was manifesting in their behaviors. Um, again, I was giving them different wrapping paper, but generation after generation after generation, it was the same freaking package. And I knew in order to change it, I had to change. And that meant asking for help. It meant seeking it out relentlessly. Um, and it took me a good 12 years of like two steps forward, five back, two steps forward, five back. Because when you've been conditioned that way for decades yeah. to do something that you know you have to do, but it feels so unsafe, even though you want it, it feels so uncertain, but you want it, you resort back to the old habits and patterns because our neurological system, our it's emotional really system, yeah, it's, that feels like home, even though home was scary, toxic, and uncertain. Um, I kept going back to what I knew. Yeah, I can completely understand that. And I think that's one of the things that is often overlooked when we talk about working in um, the addiction space and we talk about working with people who have addictive behaviours. Um, the effort it takes for change is monumental. And I was listening to you and thinking about the courage as well uh, as a mother to ask help for an addiction. And I'm imagining all the stigma that you, you perceived, whether you actually faced it or not, I don't know. I'm sure you'll tell me in a minute. But, um, you know, that, that perceived stigma of I'm a bad mother, someone's going to come and take my kids off me, all these things, I'm going to get judged in the school, but with the school mums and all that sort of stuff. I mean, how did you deal with that? I mean, that sounds like an incredibly brave decision point. Well, by the time I asked for help with that, um, I was okay with that. You know, I was conditioned because, you know, I became the addict, but I also grew up in addiction and the classic, you know, behaviors and laundry list of characteristics from an adult child of an addict. We'll just pick up where we left off before we froze. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay. So I wasn't really worried about the stigma of it. It's just the conditioning I had was you can't trust anyone because I mean, I, I couldn't trust my own parents at that point. And so to really 
seek out help. It wasn't that I wasn't willing. It's just the trust level was really, really low. And so, you know, like most people do, most people that come to you, most people that come to me at this point, they come to me for something other than the real issue. And for, for 12 years, I went through several different therapists for the more surface level stuff, you know, like my marriage was struggling. Um, my health, you know, stuff was struggling, um, you know, things like that. And it wasn't until I started to, my kids became teenagers and I was looking at them and realizing that even though I showed up differently than my parents, the coping mechanisms were being passed down to that generation. And I know what burden that was. And that was the last thing I wanted for my kids. And so I was relentless about saying, this is who I am. I, I have to go first. I, you know, kids will do what we do, not what we say to do. And I needed to show them something different, but I had no skill set or tools to do that. And so it was about seven years ago that I was all in, I was done playing this surface level bullshit stuff. And like, I am a child of an alcoholic. I don't have skills. I don't trust easily. I'm scared out of my mind most most days and my kids are too. And how do I change my belief systems and break the generational stuff that wasn't just passed from my dad. It went many generations deep in learning what I have and really just surrendering. Like I will do whatever it takes to not have my kids carry this burden. And so I don't have to carry it anymore. I was 40 years old at that point. I was done carrying it. It was exhausting and it would sabotage anything good in my life. It sabotaged every relationship I'd ever had. I was a boss in business, but I would sabotage that. Um, Obviously the kids were the number one defining thing. And I knew in order for them to not carry that, Trace had to go first. And so I was all in, I didn't give a shit what anybody thought about me. And like the alcohol, honestly, in the grand scheme of things, most people are like, you aren't an alcoholic. I'm like, well, honestly, that's just a symptom of the deeper stuff. And I'm just going to go into recovery for that, the eating disorders, the workaholism, the exercise-holic stuff. But at the base of all of this was a broken little girl growing up in an alcoholic home with coping mechanisms that she's operating in fight or flight or freeze every single day. Yeah. And I need to change that and I need to change it now. And that's kind of where that picked up. Such an important point that you raise, you know, these, and this is something I do see a lot in my work as a psychologist is the, the coping mechanisms that kids intuitively draw on. So those fight or flight mechanisms, the freeze mechanism, if they don't see me, if they don't hear me, if I'm kind of invisible, they'll leave me alone. You see that a lot in kids in violent households and those mechanisms help the child survive. So they're quite adaptive when you're a kid, the trouble is, while you're so focused on that stuff, you're not developing all the other life skills, emotion management skills, coping skills that in theory everyone else is learning through the the typical trajectory through childhood. And so then it does, it blows up in your face big time as an adult. So you mentioned the the transgenerational change in, in terms of you wanted to break a cycle that was 
you know, running really deep. I've got Irish ancestry as well. My great grandparents were Irish. My you know, ancestors are convicts in Australia. I know the story, right? Um, alcoholics and prostitutes, that's my, my convict heritage, <laughs> right? But um, I think, you know, we, we um, in Australia, we, I think, as a culture also have tried to make some generational change, particularly for men. Um, you know, I grew up in a culture where men were supposed to get drunk. They were supposed to watch the football. They were supposed to have a fight afterwards. That's mm -hmm. how it just was. And I think we're now making changes as a society as well. I'm excited to see, you know, the future generations of both little girls like you were and little boys who are growing up in a different culture that doesn't tolerate as much of the stuff that you and I were expected to tolerate as kids, you know. Um, mm -hmm. But it is hard. It's like pushing against a tidal wave when you're talking about generational shift. Hmm. Oh, my gosh, yeah. Did those conversations happen with, with your broader family? Did, did any of that get addressed? Um, yes. And, you know, honestly, I wasn't, like I knew regardless of what they thought, believed, it didn't matter because I knew that I needed to change. And I knew also my family is amazing and, and extremely loyal and passionate quotation marks. Um, and they're very opinionated too and prideful. And when we talk about generational stuff, they take it very personal yeah. And at first, when I started to do the work, they were like, oh, that's great for you. Like, good for you. And obviously, over the seven years as my work now is this, like, I am so passionate about the generational pattern thing because, you know, not just with addiction, but just like codependency is the biggest addiction of all. And I fall into both the addict as well as the codependent because I grew up in it. And and that is doing a lot more damage even than the full-blown alcoholic in a lot of ways because we people please, we, we dim our lights. And, you know, so as I started to do the work, you know, I carried a lot of resentment for both my parents for a long, long time before I really was deep diving. And, and carrying resentment really doesn't do any healing at all. It just keeps you more anger, more angry and has you just blowing shit up all the time yeah. because you're just... <laughs> So, and, 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 and you play the victim, you know, I, we were, we are victimized a lot of, a lot of us. I, I would say most people have some victimization as a child, yet the real change came when I turned the mirror around and, and said, well, it's up to me if I choose to be a victim in this. And so I started to deep dive into the lineage of both my parents and I was able to find compassion for both of them. Like I understood, it made perfect sense why my mom was the way she was. No kidding. Like she was doing way better than what she had. And my dad, like very clear as day, logically. And this is the problem with personal development today, y'all. So take notes right here, right now. This is why this work that you do and I do is so fucking important because I could intellectualize and make perfect sense of it and have compassion and empathy for both my parents. Yet there's this little girl still living inside of me with a broken heart that feels like she wasn't treated well, that she's driving the emotions and she's driving the belief system. And that's the problem with development today is we can understand and do all the meditations and affirmations, which are great, but it's not going to heal the heart space. The emotional wellness isn't going to get better. And eventually you're just kicking the can down the street and it's going to keep manifesting itself and keep showing up in different packages. 
And it wasn't until I really allowed my heart to break all over again and, and let that little girl in me know that I had her, that she was safe. So yeah. it, it felt kind of like split personality sometimes, but I had to go reparent her all over again because we can't change how we grew up. We can't change who our parents were. And quite honestly, they did the best they could with what they had to work with. But that doesn't change the heart space and the emotional sobriety, the emotional wellness um, moving forward. And so, you know, sometimes if, if you've ever broken a bone, let's say, and it doesn't get set properly in a cast, a lot of times the doctor will have to go in and re-break it so it can heal properly, so it can function optimally, like how it's supposed to. And our heart is no different. So it required me to have to go in and re-break my heart all over again and feel all the things, to feel that pain of the abandonment, of the neglect, of the not being protected, of the not being heard, the you're better seen than heard talks, and let her feel that all over again, but with a parent that was present in me, and you know, build that love into her and safety and a new belief system that she is worthy, she is beautiful, she is capable, she is equipped. And it wasn't until I consistently did that, and I still do it from time to time because there's different stages of my life, you know, the little girl and then the 10-year-old that I talk about and then the teenage version, you know, it's, there's three different belief systems that were built in those stages of my life. And I think what happens is a lot of people will do the mindset work but won't do the heart sick work and transformation in business. Like the reason I am so at ease in business and I can make millions of dollars and do the things I can without overwhelm is because of the willingness to do that heart work. Yeah. And if you're listening out there and you've done all the things, the events, the masterminds, the coaches, the therapists, even right. Yep. Absolutely. Be willing to let your heart break you can recover and you will recover and you'll recover stronger. Um, and you'll be able to really operate from a place of that, what, how you were meant to from the begin to begin with before life came and kicked your ass a little bit. That's so true. And it reminds me of some of what Brene Brown talks about when she talks about vulnerability and she yeah. talks about dropping those shields. And I think so many times, and I see it, I see it play in my own life as well as so many people that I work with that we've got this coping face and we say the words like you were saying before about being able to intellectualize everything that's happened in your life. Um, you know, and we say, okay, I understand. I, I've, I've got the empathy. I've got the intellectual understanding of what my background was like. Um, I've spoken to a few people. I think I'm done with that now. I've and let that shit go. I've let know. that shit go, right? But really what we're doing is we're actually really steadfastly holding those shields in place and we're not letting them go. Uh, and that is a very brave journey to take us, you know, because we're talking about being very vulnerable to our own younger selves. And, you know, to, to do that, it does require a level of courage and bravery because it does get scary as hell um, for that little girl. And as the new parent, like, okay, am I equipped to show her a different way? And it's like, yes, yes, you are. And what you asked earlier about my extended family Mm. and the healthier I get, the more pushback I get. Um, 
you know, if you're a fan of Marianne Williamson and she says, you know, it's not that we're afraid of success. We're afraid of shining our light so bright, you know, and I'm paraphrasing it all, but you know, but what if I am able? And when my family looks at me today, I know that they're not real comfortable with me. They aren't happy about the work I do because they believe and it's not a reflection of them that I'm not going to rob them of their process, their journey, but me talking about generational stuff, they want to stay private in it. And I'm not calling out any names. I mean, my parents are my parents and you know, it is what it is, but um, they take offense to my work and, and that's okay. I'm okay with that because I know the shit stopped with me. I have a son and a daughter who are 21 and 22 today. I have a son that is strong and sensitive and compassionate and empathetic and has healthy boundaries without anger tied to it. I have a daughter that no longer is the escapist and seeking out validity and worth in things that are unhealthy. Um, and those two amazing children will make an impact on the world for the next generation. And the third probably um, generation of codependence out there. I think you and I are like the second generation of codependence before it was a thing. Yeah. And to know that the shit stopped with me, I will take any bullets, any arrows, any shit that anybody throws my way because I just made the shit stop with me and they don't have to carry it anymore. And I think that's where a lot of people get stuck is, but you know, they're, they're so fixated on what our family thinks. And I get that. I mean, it's hurtful. My heart hurts. I have to heal the hurt that comes with that. It's painful to be rejected by your family. It is, it's painful and it's worth it um, to live my best self, the person I was supposed to be, the person that my kids deserve. Yep. And this is where I, I'm sure you see it all the time in your work. It's like they'll inch forward and then they'll go back into their environment which a lot of times it's our extended family. And it's like, who do you think you are? I heard that a lot, a lot of the time, or you're getting a little big for your britches or, you know, what happened in our houses stayed in our houses and that shit just doesn't work. That's why we have generational baggage that we are lugging around for centuries and I'm just not willing to do it anymore. Yeah. And I'm okay with the heat that comes with that. And I think that's, you know, it's, it's really important important and valid point you know now that we are in the social media age and we are in the global age you know you have a global brand I have a global brand that's why we're talking to each other across mm -hmm. the oceans right and it means like you said before about shining our lights and having a message that is so um impactful because we're honest and prepared to be vulnerable and every now and then in fact I did a, a video on this recently where I was calling myself out on, on actually keeping my shields a little bit too high um, and I think that when we do that people are triggered whether they're our family or our friends or our colleagues or our peers or who they might be but people will be triggered because we are doing this in a public space but I think for me yes my children obviously are similar to you you know I want a new generation I have two sons and I want a new generation of men who are vulnerable and open and flexible and creative and all those things problem solving but I also want to reach the people that I never see. I want to reach the people who never mm -hmm. interact with my videos, but they see it and they recognize themselves in my journey. And for me, that's, that's the inspiration is, is the people that see themselves and no longer feel isolated, particularly in a business sense for me, you no longer feel isolated. So. Well, I'm circling back to that, 
Yeah. Like if I, if I take you back to the beginning of the story when I was 10 yeah. years old and actively seeking what this was all about, for those of you that have been through things, like all of it mattered. Like all those things that I went through, I believed somehow they had to matter. And so for me to have come full circle now as this healer of sorts to help people really, you know, hold their hand, not enable, not be codependent with anybody, but say, you can do this. It's brave. All of that stuff, all the pain that you are like shielding, like all of it mattered. And it's part of your message. And it's part of the, the beautiful divine gift that you have today. Like you were chosen very specifically for mighty works and all of it matters. And if you stay shielded behind it, it's all for nothing. So let's bravely walk this journey together. I've got your back. This is safe. I promise you. And allow that light to shine because the world, I mean, especially in the land of that we live in today, the world needs more light workers and light shiners and, um, I know how scary it is. It's still scary. I still, you know, instead of like being negatively affected by my own triggers, which are very few anymore, um, but I celebrate them because it's an opportunity to grow at a deeper level and to learn more about myself. So if you're triggered, fucking celebrate it. It's fantastic when you know you've got the tools to work with it. And it's like, oh, here comes another growth opportunity. That's like, exactly what's this about? Right. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's, it's like your, little, your own little... Um, alarm system going off in a way saying to you you're triggered because this is a moment this is a moment that you need to pay attention to and there is something for you to learn from this you know i know you um i'm sure the same as i would never go out to deliberately trigger people in a way that is is intentional or harmful or, or without the best of intentions. You know, the work that we do, we understand is triggering for some people. And mm -hmm. if we're not pushing our own comfort zones, if we're not pushing the comfort zones of the people that are watching, listening, participating in the work we do, then nothing changes. Nobody changes. What's the point of it all? And that's the thing. Like there was a time in my life when I was, wrapped up in the pain of it that I did intentionally trigger people because it was just another layer of protection. It would keep people away from me. So I wanted them afraid of me. I wanted them to walk on eggshells around me because then they'd leave me alone and they couldn't hurt me. And, you know, today I, I do preface things. I'm like, I'm going to speak love and truth into you. And it is, it's like the velvet hammer, which is kind of my nickname. Like I am going to whack you over the head a little bit, but is with such softness and love that um, I pray you receive it as that. And, you know, again, you got to be ready to do the work. Um, I, Lord knows I tried for a long time and I wasn't completely ready. Sometimes we have to have a perfect storm to have the willingness there. And like you said, what the work that you and I both do, it's more for the people that are watching that never say a word that, you know, we're just kind of dripping like, okay, this is making sense. And when I look back on my life, you know, I was exposed to Oprah at 10 years old before the world was because she was, she was a local in Chicago, which is where I grew up. And so before the world got her, I did. And she was always dripping things. And then I would see certain things. I'm like, it was just this constant drip that until the timing was right, the perfect storm hit and wiped me out that I could receive all of that information. And so 
I will continue to do this. I know you will too for the person that never says a fucking word to us that maybe even listens to us and think we're quacks or out of our mind. And really, really it's, that's a little woo woo for me. That's okay. I, I get it. Cause 10 years ago I would have been making fun of a me. So I totally get it. And just know that if you're hearing it, it's meant for you and just take it in and you don't have to do anything with it today, but just know that it will, it will come into play at some point for you. I promise whether you want it to or not, it does. It always does. Such a beautiful sentiment. How did you go from your own recovery to that turning point when you knew that you had something to offer others? When did you, how did that decision come? You know, it was um, when I decided to get into recovery, I pretty much burned all my boats. I wiped out my entire social network. I walked away from pretty much everything but my children. I used to be in the car industry. I sold cars. I was an executive in the car industry. I walked away from my career and every ounce of my income. And I literally burned it to the ground to start over. And sometimes we do need to do it. I don't recommend it if you don't have to, but I was very stubborn and strong willed that that's what was required of me. And, you know, for the first six months, I really made it my job to be willing to do whatever I needed to do to unpack whatever I needed to, no matter how scary I threw myself into a recovery community. So I could realize, holy shit, like I'm not the only person like I thought I was special and, and I am, but in not the ways that I thought. And it was about six months into it. I ended up in a business that I never thought I would end up in. I was in network marketing by an accident and, you know, like on paper, I had no social network. <laughs> I was not the poster child for health and wellness. I was that single mom that went to rehab. Do you want to join a business with me? And it was like that blind faith that I knew that I loved the products I had started. I knew that my recovery work, my humility, my, my level of um, honesty, you know, I believe we're as sick as our secrets. And I had exposed all of them at that point. I had nothing left to hide. And so joining and starting a network marketing business by accident, I saw me just using my own principles of my own life in how I led people. Um, I built a massive empire and within two years I had a very large organization and made my first million dollars in two years, all based on my own recovery work. Um, and people would ask me all the time because I came out of nowhere. Yeah. People were like, wait a second, you're that single mom that went to rehab that had no social network. How did you do it? What's the secret? Yeah. And I said, the secret is this internal healing work, this emotional sobriety that I have. It is recovery. It is willing to heal the heart so I can show up in the world completely authentic with no masks, no shields, no bullshit, no secrets. And pe people are drawn to that. They trust it. They want to emulate that. Yeah. And that's how I did it. And so, you know, I built a very large, obviously, organization doing that using my tools of recovery and people would come to me to build a business. And I mean, I've built, helped build, build seven millionaires in my organization. So obviously people were coming to me for my business mind. Yeah. And I'm like, listen, I, I can give you all my strategy in the world and I'm smart and I have a strong business mind. But the real reason 
for my success is this healing work. And if you're willing to go to some hard places, I can help you heal, not just for your business, but for your life and for generations that follow you. And if you're down for that, grab my hand and we're going to fucking go. And that's what people were drawn to. And, you know, obviously outside of the network marketing space, I still do that. I still do it. I love it. But it was the passion for this. You know, I've got millennials now and my son does a lot of uh, volunteering of his time with um, the youth and bringing them into my home and realizing the generational patterns, you know, they're seeking a new way. Most of them were raised with addiction. Most of them were raised with abuse and, and, you know, all of the things and they so badly want to break the patterns, but they don't have the, the tools either. And so they're watching my son and then they come into my home. And so obviously doing this outside of the network marketing industry was really important to me because I did want to touch more than just a community that, I mean, it was great that I financially benefited from them doing their work, but I really want people to do this for a reason other than that. Um, because of the generations, you know, this isn't just for me, this isn't just for my kids. It's for my great grandkids, uh, for, for grandkids that I'll never see. And, um, so I became super passionate. And when everybody was asking me what my secret was, this is the secret. This is the secret to having a business that's super successful, super sustainable without overwhelm, with so much ease, with purpose, with passion, um, and that's what people want. It isn't necessarily the dollars and the, the titles and the ego and the validation. They really want to go to bed at night, laying their head down, knowing they, sh- they were able to show up in the world authentically them, making an impact and making money that gives them choices, freedom and time, which we can never get back. And so that's why I'm so passionate about doing this and screaming it from the rooftops. And I'm sure you get this too. I mean, I am the type of person that most people are like, yeah, I don't want to work with her because if I do, then, oh my God, people know that I'm working on the real hard stuff or that maybe I have something to hide and I'm okay with that. You know, I know that they know when they work with me, they're going to get to the root of it. And that isn't easy. We say we want it, but doing and saying are two totally different things. Yeah. It gets back to that issue of vulnerability, doesn't it? You know, I'm listening to you and you know, hearing all those stereotypes over the years about vulnerability being weakness and weakness being bad for business. And, and yet here you are showing that by being authentic, being true to the pain that led to your passion, being true to the vulnerability that you've needed in your own recovery and being open about that has actually drawn, drawn work, drawn business, drawn clientele, whatever you want to call it, an audience, whatever you want to call it, has drawn that to people to you. Because yeah, it's so funny that you say that because if you look at the industry I was in before, which was the car industry, which is predominantly <laughs> male dominated, it's like a thousand to one ratio. Yeah. I was the power suit wearing, power driven, power hungry woman. And although I was successful, I was fucking miserable. I hated my life. I drank a lot. I overworked. Like I was in ego and pride. And I hated everything about my life other than my kids. And I was being pulled away from them. Being that non-vulnerable, I was that person. I was like, fuck vulnerability. You're, you're weak if you show any of that. That's how I was raised. You know, I was raised, power through it, suck it up. 
And it wasn't until I smashed all my own masks and said, this is who I am, all my mistakes. I'm that single mom that went to rehab and you know what healing happens and look what happens. Like, look what happens in my family. Look what happens in my business. Look what happens in my health. Yeah. And I'm 40, I'm 47 today. And people are like, what? Like, it, like it just has this ripple effect and a compound effect that that vulnerability, not just in a good Facebook post or an Instagram post, which we see a lot of fake vulnerability out there or, or um, manufactured or discounted. Like the real vulnerability is like, this is who I am, my shit show and all. And I love every part of it. And just, and people relate to that. People want to see a shit show succeed. Yeah. And, and I was the epitome of that. So they're like, yay, team shit show. Let's do this. <laughs> Shit show, I love it. You've just created a new hashtag. I love it. There you go. I think that's that underdog, you know, everyone cheers for the underdog. And I think that there's um, there's that conflict between stepping outside of your box and being shot down. But when you succeed, it's like, oh, wow, you did the right things. <laughs> you know? But there's a, there's a little, like, yeah, we have to be careful, though, because people do cheer for the underdog. Mm. And because I was like this, overcomer most of my life I would like have problems overcome it have problems overcome it and the real growth came Tess was when I needed to grow without chaos and not like because we can sabotage ourselves to become the underdog that people root for again and that was a real that was probably the hardest part of all this is to not go back to the shit show to rise to have people cheer me on but just to continue to grow without the drama the chaos because i know how to operate in that i know how to operate when my back is up against the wall but to grow in a healthy environment like that's new to me so it's it's awesome and scary and all the things but it's so so worth it all of it yeah oh thank you so much for sharing this today i've just I've, I've said to you before we were recording that this um, this has actually been arranged for a little while now. Seeing, it has felt like a long time that I've been waiting for today so that we could sit down and have a conversation. And I've thoroughly enjoyed it. So I really want to thank you for being part of the podcast. Is there, uh, what's the best way for people to follow what you're up to? What's the best way for people to find you? Well, Instagram seems to be the thing, even for this old girl. And I think that you can see like the real life stuff, the, the conversations, my own shit show. I mean, I, and it's a good shit show. It's fun. And, and just the growth and the real talk and the real not discounted vulnerability on Instagram at Tracy underscore O'Malley. Um, you can go to my website, which is Tracy O'Malley.com. I don't love my website. I'm working on it, but it's a good resource too. It looks and nice. It's fine. Thank you. You don't want fine you. though, do you? You want something a bit more kick-ass than fine. <laughs> I, you know, I just, I just want it to be me and not, you know, when, when we talk about like authenticity, like writing copy, like even saying the word copy feels like, oh, you know, cause it's like, no, I just live my life and speak my truth and and to do a website, you kind of have to be like that. And it's just weird to me. So uh, go to either one of those places, please. Like if, if you have a question, don't hesitate to reach out. If I, even if I trigger you, tell me and I can kind of help you navigate through that. So you can learn how to celebrate it instead of um, go down a rabbit hole with it. Yeah. So generous. 
Tracy, thank you for being on the Finding Proof podcast. It has been a joy and I really hope that perhaps the next time in, I'm in the United States, we might even cross paths in the middle. I would love that. Um, Keep doing your work too. Like seriously, um, I think the world needs more of what you do as well. So thank you for sharing me and for sharing you with me. I appreciate oh, it. Oh, that's so lovely. Thank you so much. Thank you.